1: You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and try to determine if our obstacles are human or systemic in nature. We may be the good guys, but does that mean there's bad guys? I'm not entirely sure. But I do know I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today former global head of elections integrity operations for political advertising at Facebook, diplomat, corporate social responsibility advisor, and technology activist, Yael Eisenstadt.
0: It was always about trying to bring a very human perspective to a very serious global security issue.
1: Yael will be helping us distinguish between the conscious and the automatic malfeasance of our social infrastructure. It's time to intervene on behalf of people I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Team Human is a team effort, including the support of Patreon members like Tara Penny, Zola Jesus, Ethan Atkins, Octave, and Sarah Day-Evans. For as little as $2 a month, you can gain access to our bonus feed of Conversations from the Archive with Timothy Leary, David Lynch, Joanna Harcourt-Smith, Terence McKenna, Genesis Peoridge, among many, many others. You'll also get access to our Discord channel and other cool stuff that we're working on and we'll be announcing in the next few weeks. As the hedge fund billionaires suffering catastrophic losses and the Wall Street bets activist campaign now realize, we reap what we sow. And even more so in a digital age. Norbert Wiener, of all people, tried to warn us about this way back in the 1950s, that digital technologies would be cybernetic in nature. They don't function in the straight, linear fashion of the industrial age with assembly lines and growth-based capitalism. No, the world of cybernetics is a world of feedback loops, like the cycles of a computer, call and response. Everything comes back like karma. And though for a while, it looked like digital technology was just going to accelerate that relentless drive toward infinite wealth for the few, feedback has finally kicked in and the digital revolution so many of us have been waiting for may at last be here. First off, we have to remember that migrating the markets to the Internet was a bad idea in the first place. Media environments tend to determine a whole lot more about the way things function inside them than we like to believe. Initially, the tools help us do the things we want to do more efficiently, but then we start to change our behavior to meet the needs of the tools, and eventually the tools take over, making our decisions for us. It's one big system where people may as well be bots. Most of the hedge fund billionaires I've met, they don't really make decisions anymore beyond whom to hire to write their algorithms. The only ones who maintain any autonomy at all in these systems, they're the hackers and gamers, like the ones currently invading the marketplace to save them a medically appropriate company, GameStop. Indeed, the elite put business politics, and eventually finance inside a video game. And now we're playing it. I wrote my dissertation about this Ten years ago, when it still looked like the digital trading platforms were going to remain one step ahead of the human players, the discount brokers, I mean, like E-Trade and those guys, they built these online platforms that simulated the screens of professional brokers, and they kind of fooled retail users to day trade and play with options. And as the study showed, the more frequently retail traders transacted, the more money they lost and the more fees the platforms collected. And for a while, it seemed like the traditional players were going to maintain their stranglehold over the economy, just crushing businesses at will with no regard for employees or small investors or the rest of the -the on-the-ground economy. But all this sharing of tech and info with ground-level consumers, it eventually came back to haunt the big firms that were feeding off our human ignorance and the latency of our inferior internet connections. The gamers, they analyzed the whole situation from their own perspective and they finally found a way to play. But their definition of winning is really very different. They're not looking at how to become millionaires. They're not in this for the money, but for the lulls. This isn't about making a profit so much as taking down the hedge fund billionaires who are ruthlessly leveraging against real-world businesses that are just struggling to survive during a pandemic. Market experts, they're out voicing their concern that the Wall Street bets kids are going to lose their shirts at the end of the pump-and-dump scheme, but they're missing the point. Most of the traders, they're not trying to get rich off the game, but simply to make the billionaires pay. They noticed that short interest in some of these stocks, it exceeded the number of shares in existence. Eventually, that means those shorts are going to need to find shares to cover their bets. So all the Reddit kids have to do is purchase enough shares and hold them so the billionaires can't cover their bets. Then the losses are going to be incredible. And to these Activists, this alone is worth the cost of admission. Yes, it may cost a few hundreds of millions of dollars, but this burden's going to be distributed amongst a collective. Solidarity confers power. But even when it comes time to unwind their positions, if they do it right, I don't know if they can, but if they do it slowly and make a lot of agreements like, okay, everyone just sell the amount that you invested so you just get back your initial investment and then we'll slowly unwind the rest, they could do it in a way that no one actually loses money. And that's that's no small feat, you know. but neither was bringing Melvin Capital, this giant hedge fund and the other ones, bringing them to their knees. And as for the mutual funds and pension funds that invested in the likes of Melville and that they're going to be hurt, well, you know, maybe they should reconsider whether they want to grow their wealth by betting against the working economy. Karma is real. And yes, the big boys are fighting back, but it's not quite as simple as it appears. You know, last week, Robinhood and the other discount trading platforms, they began blocking the additional purchase orders on GameStop and AMC and some of the other companies that the activists are trying to hoard. And everybody cried foul, you know, and they gained the support of of politicians as disparate as AOC and Ted Cruz, because it looked like Robinhood might be taking orders from their own biggest investors, the same hedge funds and investors who are getting squeezed. But... I think like QAnon supporters, they're mistaking a systemic issue for a conspiracy. I don't think any human beings actually orchestrated the restrictions on the trading platforms. I think it may actually be worse than that. The way that retail investors are permitted to trade through these platforms at all, it's based on something of a hack. We don't buy our shares directly. They're kind of staked by clearinghouses who then require trading platforms to hold a certain amount of capital and reserve. This effectively allows the clearinghouses to let multiple traders own the same shares at the same time. What's not fair is that large institutional investors and hedge funds, some of whom have their very own trading desks, they're not subject to these same conditions. They're just allowed to keep trading to take countermeasures while the Reddit traders are frozen out. And this doesn't mean Robinhood isn't in cahoots with Citadel Securities and the other market makers that are busy bailing out the hedge funds. No, again, the reality is worse. You see, Citadel, this big clearinghouse... That's Robin Hood's real customers. Not the people who are trading on the platform for free, like the users of Facebook. Robinhood's users, they're paying with their data. Robinhood sells the data of the little traders in real time to Citadel, who can then use it to order the trade. It's a fancy term for using algorithms to get the best trading prices for its institutional customers, again, at the expense of the little customers. The system is awful, and it's just stacked against us. Moreover, it makes as much or more money off the failure of businesses as it does off their successes. Market makers like Citadel, as well as the hedge funds they serve, they used digital technology to speed up the exchanges in order to amplify their own advantages. But now that the Reddit kids have developed a strategy for fighting back, the market makers now, they're trying to slow down the whole thing again, as if it's for our own good. But the people who are supposedly in charge of the system, the billionaires benefiting from this algorithmic, ultra-fast trading scheme, they're just riding the wave. They're running on automatic. And this is what rendered them so vulnerable to the functional biases of their own technologies. The human Reddit users found what hackers would call an exploit in the system, and they leveraged it against those who are depending on the derivative operating system they've rigged for their own benefit. See, the billionaires, they are the system itself, They cannot act with autonomy. They can only do whatever it is they think or their algorithms will think will make them money. And the introduction of lulls, of pranksters into their world, means that there are now conscious, autonomously acting humans. Our moves make no sense to the algorithms or the market makers because they're not motivated by rational, short-term self-interest of the individual market player. No, it only makes sense in terms of a human collective, a team human, looking to overturn a financial system that has been devised to extract the value from our world and deliver it to an increasingly small group of billionaires at the expense of our livelihoods, our futures, and our climate. Game on. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome my friend Yael Eisenstadt to Team Human. She's worked shoulder to shoulder with some very unsavory characters, and I don't mean in her days working for the CIA, but her stint at Facebook. She was hired to help them behave more responsibly with regard to electoral politics, but she quit after just six months when she saw, as she explained in her Washington Post op-ed at the time, that Facebook profits amplifying lies and selling dangerous targeting tools that allow political operatives to engage in a new level of information warfare. There was, as she put it, no appetite for her pushing. Well, on Team Human, we love pushing and pulling alike. So here's my conversation with Yael Eisenstadt. So I, like many, I guess, I first learned of you late in your campaign to make the world a better place, which was when I saw, oh, my God, this woman has agreed to go to Facebook and help them essentially be a good global national citizen. And I was reminded of um, this guy I knew, Adam Werbach, who um, – was like head of the Sierra Club, the youngest guy, head of the Sierra Club in his 20s, who got hired by Walmart to make them green, to be their green officer. And after a couple of years where he realized all Walmart wanted to do was tell its employees to stop to carpool, he was like, this is pointless. Um, And I wondered, because I saw some of those early articles and some of the comments you were making, I was thinking, wow, could this work? Because it was sort of my dream since Google started. But, and I wrote articles saying, Google, hire me to be your ethics officer. I could t- tell you what to do. Don't you want to know the impact of what you're doing? So I'm wondering, and I know it's, it's, it's mid story, but how did that happen? How did they find you? And what did you, what did you feel like was gonna happen
0: It's funny. I am one of those people, if you look at like the career resume on paper, it looks like I've worked for some of the biggest, scariest places. I think now, of course, I'm trying to do my own self-exploration of what was my motivation for so many of these things. And I do, I fundamentally believe for myself, I'm not saying this for others, but for myself, I can't sit on the sidelines and complain about things if I haven't tried at least to tackle them myself. That's not a criticism of other people who do that. That's just my style.
1: I like that. It's like, we haven't tried everything until I've gone in there and really just, let me see what's going on here.
0: Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Anyone who knows me or has listened to me lately, listen, I'm not shy and I'm quite opinionated and, and I feel pretty grounded in my moral compass, which makes me probably more opinionated than maybe I should be. But... I am also, even though people hear me speak a lot right now, I'm very much nose to the ground, get the work done. And so for me, it's more important to go into a place like Facebook, who I even more so now, but back then truly believe it has one of the most profound impacts on democracy Of any possible entity. And if I am going to spend A, my life defending democracy and working for sort of more just and secure and peaceful world, I can't ignore the fact that this company is having such a profound impact on these things. So when the recruiters called me, I think maybe previously I had expressed interest in some role like a year or two earlier because then I think your name is in their data bank. But when the recruiter called me, and they called me about a slightly different role at first, throughout the whole process, I was very, very clear through every interview and with the recruiter that don't hire me if you don't mean it. I didn't say I'm not coming here for the free snacks, but it was very clear I'm not coming here for the free snacks. I'm not fresh out of college. I'd
1: love this isn't the free my, snacks.
0: I mean, free snacks are great, <laughs> but...
1: Uh, That's maybe my primary reason for getting a job there would be free a snacks. a lot
0: of free snacks. Um, but I 100% believe that Facebook's impact on democracy, on society, on the, on the public square, on all of these things is so critical for all the things that i hold dear and i think that you guys are screwing it up i didn't think i was going to go there and single-handedly change the company i am not naive and i'm also not this like sort of wide-eyed optimist idealist i'm very much a realist i am very much grounded in knowing the challenges accepting how challenging things are going to be but When they finally called with the actual offer, which happened the day that Mark Zuckerberg was testifying at the Senate. Mm. Yeah. So I'm sitting at home in my pajamas, I think, watching the entire Senate hearing, knowing that Facebook is debating in that very moment whether or not to hire me. I had already been through all the interviews. I knew that four out of the five people who interviewed me were maybe started off skeptical, but by the end, I knew they wanted me. I mean, I do know how to read people. Perhaps that comes a little bit from my <laughs> past. And I knew that one of them absolutely didn't want me. It was very, very clear. So I knew they were debating me while Mark Zuckerberg was testifying.
1: And this is for the job of... did they what was this job called? Or so at was the time,
0: it? it was a different role. I don't remember the actual title, but it was still in business integrity, which is the side of Facebook that I don't even know if they still call it business in- integrity. But basically, it's the ads side, the nasty side of the business, where it's not all unicorns and care bears, but like actual making money. And the integrity part is supposed to be about ensuring that the platform isn't manipulated by bad actors in advertising. And so it was some new role about, like, sort of anticipating the risks around the corner and bad actors that might want to exploit the
1: platform. And this was post-Trump election. Correct. This was in 2018. So they were basically in that period where they're like, oh, my God, what has social media done to undermine not only the left, but hopefully, you know, they were thinking democracy as a whole and disinformation and Russian stuff and trolls and bots and Cambridge and Analytica. Yeah.
0: is when I was speaking to the recruiters and this is, you know, future advice for anyone going through this process. The recruiter was absolutely wonderful and lovely. Don't think that everything you say to the recruiter is getting through to the people you're actually going to work for and actually work with. Um, Cause I was very clear to her. I even sent her. Clips of my speaking and some of the articles I wrote I said I want you to understand. I have been publicly critical of Facebook Like I didn't want anything left off the table If you're gonna hire me you need to know what you're getting and thank god I did because in the end they can't say they didn't know who they were getting I said here is my like keynote speech in Berlin where I spoke about the fears I have about what Facebook's doing to the world, you need to know that I believe you are one of the biggest threats to democracy. And if you really want me to come help you try to figure out what to do about how your platform will view and influence elections around the world. Great. But understand this is who I am. And so I never thought I would go in and change the company that said, I also felt if you're going to hire someone like me after all of this, after how transparent I've been with you, after having seen what I say, read some of my articles, then you know what you're getting. And so, and I even asked during the interviews, I remember asking very clearly some of the interviewers, some of whom are no longer at Facebook. Do you have support from the top to the bottom for someone like me and for this role? And the reason I asked that question is because I had gone in to Exxon years earlier to work on corporate social responsibility. Hmm. And one of the biggest lessons I learned there was there was not support for someone like me. There were not, there were people who wanted nothing to do with the types of things I thought I'd be working on. So I asked Facebook very clearly, I need to know from the top down to the very bottom that people are excited that you're creating this role. Oh, so then they created the role for me and and it was this new role. And I want to be really clear about what the title was, because this is like ridiculous when they changed it on day two. It was Global Head of Elections Integrity Operations. That's a Mm. big freaking title. Yeah. They... Offer that to me just after the Senate hearing ended. I had just listened to Mark Zuckerberg testify in the Senate and bring up elections and how much he's going to make it a top priority over and over again to U.S. senators. This is going to be our top priority. This is going to be our top priority. And then they call me and say, "Do you want to head this for like, the good. political advertising right. side?"
1: And that sounds like at that point more than you know, because the, the fear is always, "Oh, the hiring is the thing." <laughs> that it begins and ends with hiring a, a person so they could say look we hired a person to do this and so i get it so you wanted to know that you this isn't just your hiring is not the beginning and end of this movement that it's the just the beginning that this is and it's and they know who you are and you're going to go run with this ball
0: yeah and and what's fascinating i have tossed and turned my facebook experience over and over in my head for the last you know ever since leaving. The one thing I have never understood is why they hired me to begin with, because it wasn't a PR stunt. They didn't talk about me to the press. In fact, a New York Times reporter had called them on day one and said, we hear you hired your allies instead. And they came to me and said, the New York Times is calling about you. And I said, I don't want to speak to them. I want to get my job done this isn't a PR stunt for me. And it wasn't a PR stunt for them either. So it wasn't a PR stunt. I don't believe it was to silence me because although I was a critic, I didn't have this huge following yet.
1: that would be a cool company though, who just hires all their critics to silence them. I mean, we'd get rich. Well, that's what Facebook
0: does, right? They they (laughs) had, so they have done that with some others. And so that's why I don't, I, I think there were some people who really, really wanted someone like me to bring in a different perspective, a different lens, and to help them think differently. And then there were some people who didn't want that at all. And they got overruled. But then when I came in, those were the people I was actually working for.
1: And they squashed it. Right. To go back in time from this, to who is it that they were hiring? Like, what You had worked, by then, you had already worked like, with the vice president on issues of national security and stuff with, with Biden when he was working with Obama. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So I had spent about 14 years in government in the foreign policy and national security world a lot of it working overseas or on global issues i had not really actually focused on domestic issues and and facebook's not a domestic issue right it is a global entity
1: and internationally though do you see your role was it like helping to what like change foreign people's attitudes toward america or like You know, looking at their nuclear reactors and seeing if they're making weapons. It's like no,
0: I was not not the latter. Actually, the first, the former. So, I mean, my roles changed over the years. Listen, I, I joined government before September 11th. So. I was maybe a little more grounded in idealism like we often are when we we're younger. <laughs> I was just I was I spent a bunch of time in Africa. It had been this actual music and art interest that drew me there to be frank and turned into a really just sort of cultural and political interest and it was you know where should the US's place be in the world and how do we strengthen you know our relationships with allies and then yes yeah, some of it shifted a bit after September 11th to for me which is why it's kind of funny that I'm on team human because I've said this a lot before meeting you it was always about trying to bring a very human perspective to a very serious global security issue so like one of when I spent a few years in Nairobi with the state department I was supposed to be heading the counter extremism some of the counter extremism work what that meant to me was understanding the human beings and these vulnerable communities, helping them understand who we are, very soft skill, diplomacy, hearts and minds type work. This, of course, is before the days of Facebook, really. This is in 2004 to six. So it's Engaging with people, really, like seriously, sitting in a room for three hours and right. hashing out your misunderstandings. But then like you can that. find
1: out big things, like yeah. oh, the reason why people are upset here is because they have a water security issue. Mm-hmm. If we address the water security issue, then the warlords aren't going to be as big, and then they won't be fighting against us, and then everybody's going to be happy. You just
0: absolutely right. nailed it. Like that's exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what it is.
1: Yeah, and this is what what. People like me get by reading like Naomi Klein and seeing disaster capitalism and global, you know, my media studies and social justice students have such an American perspective on everything. And to get them to take a global media course rather than an American or Western media course is so hard, but they don't understand that there's just basic on the ground sustainability issues, or we've destroyed the topsoil so they can't do subsistence farming anymore. So then how do you expect there to be a healthy body politic in a nation that now can't feed itself?
0: And and the biggest skill I brought to the table in that role, this was the core of my TED talk as well, was listening. The biggest right. skill I brought to that job, and it wasn't in a job description, it was something that I learned. The biggest thing I could do was actually listen. The time I spent sitting with like leaders of these communities down to The women's groups to the youth groups and listening even if I couldn't personally change anything the amount of validation people feel when you instead of saying I am America I'm here to help or I am America let me fix your problems I know what to do it was why don't you tell me what your problem is and I'm gonna listen and then we're gonna talk about if there is a way to collaborate on this and that was the core of what I did and I can say, without going into any details, because obviously I can't talk about a lot of my previous work, I can just personally say that I know for a fact that lives were saved based on some of the relationships made during those years.
1: I know that's very vague, sorry, but. No, but that's that's a beautiful thing. But then c- you can also, I would think, you know, reassure those of us, and, and certainly a lot of team listeners are like me, and we read a lot of the conspiracy theory and stuff, and and the, the the legitimate theory around the Great Reset and Club of Rome and Bilderberg and um, uh, all these uh, seeming giant coordinated efforts by g- global billionaire elite that somehow controlling. Um, global affairs, it seems that if your job existed and you were on the ground engaging with people and understanding them, that it means that there's not some giant hegemonic organized conscious – I mean, there might be some systemic effects of capitalism destroying the planet, but there's not a black copter thing that's just controlling everything. I mean, it's not there, is it? I mean, from my experience,
0: it's not, and some people might say I haven't taken, what is it, the red pill or the blue pill, or like I didn't realize I was just a part, a cog in this whole wheel. I mean, listen, as funny as this is going to sound, I have never said this on a show before, so hopefully this doesn't destroy my future potential to ever do anything again. Do I always keep open the smallest part of my mind to recognize that, okay, that's, I I can't 100% say that's not true. But to my experience, nothing I experienced, saw, or did would even make me think that. I mean, the funny thing is, if people only knew, like, I used to laugh, there would be people from, like, countries that were lovely but very small and geopolitically just not necessary at all for us grand thinking and they'd be like i know that the cia is listening to everything i do da da, da, da or americans will say that yeah. and i try to say do you know like how uninterested the cia is in you like you are just nowhere <laughs> on their radar you're not that interesting like this whole global conspiracy of again Is it possible that I am a complete idiot and didn't realize that this was all going on? I guess, but what I experienced was very real. It was men and women who were mostly just like really good public servants who really wanted to make the world a better place. Of course, there's lots of people in government who I don't agree with and all of those things, but it's just not as sexy,
1: black hat, is everyone it, like it to be. It seems like if there was a deep state place, you would have see- run into it.
0: I would think so because I really, <laughs> like my career, I didn't just sit at one desk. Like over those 14 years, right. I worked in five different government agencies. I worked at the highest levels. I worked in the White House on the national security team. I was in that situation room for some pretty big yeah. meetings. If that was going on, then I was never invited to those meetings. Like if there was a right. like ultra basement meeting right. room a situation I never room under the <laughs> other
1: situation room where it's Dang happening it, why
0: wasn't i invited like that's what right. i want to know especially if, you know, if it was a grand Jewish conspiracy to take over the world, then really, why wasn't I invited to right. those
1: meetings? Exactly. I didn't get the call before 9-11 that apparently George Soros went on speed dial to every Jew in America to tell them not to too, be it. I missed
0: it too, Doug. I missed yeah, it too.
1: I could have gotten killed. You know, it'd been like, no, but I, and, and Jews did, but that's besides the point. But to finish this thread, it feels to me that if there is a kind of a deep state conspiracy associated with the with the establishment left. It's more, and I know a lot of these folks, I've got neighbors who are kind of this democratic consultant class, like the people who know like Neera Tandon and John Podesta and run foundations and all, and they kind of make like Two or three hundred thousand dollars a year, and they get these contracts, like doing a campaign or a publicity campaign for the left, or this, or you go in, and it's not like it's a deep state conspiracy. It's more like a, a a corrupt consultant hangers-on class that makes so much money off the whole political process. You know what I mean? Those people, and they they annoy me because they're always like. Like Hillary Clinton comes to town and these are the people that have the 5,000 plate dinners and are meeting because they want to get their company hired to do some BS thing. And it's like, that's, it's not a deep state. It's like the peripheral state of hangers-on that's the corrupt Well, that corrupt sounds like problem.
0: a great great capitalist state, right? And You know, it's really funny listening to you describe that. None of those people ever affected the work I did. So whatever big influence they think they have, It had nothing to do with the rank and file diplomats work day to day overseas but do you think those those groups are really trying to actually influence global policy or do you think they're just trying to say make money and be influential say i am close to this person or whatever
1: yeah exactly no i knew this guy i won't say his name an insurance salesman who my dad was friends with and he's the guy that knew Clinton well enough to get to be in the Lincoln bedroom, right? And was one of those people who slept in there with his wife? You know, not with Clinton's wife, with his own, you know. The... <laughs> yeah, thanks for the clarification. <laughs> that feels really but important. But people would get invited to this Lincoln bedroom during the Clinton, and that's like meant you were like in. And then he was the guy that got Monica Lewinsky hired as an intern, right? Oops. Uh, I mean, he thought he was doing a good thing, right? But. uh it was that's the class that I'm sort of looking at, you know that 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 feels like if the, is the closest thing to a deep state as opposed to what QAnon thinks is this deep state of, you know, if they knew, I feel like if they knew from my limited exposure to government, it looks more like the the sitcom The Office than it does. Um, <laughs>
0: yes, yeah, or the sit, or I mean, honestly, one of my favorite shows ever is Veep, and, mm-hmm. and yes, Veep is ridiculous. Julie, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is on freaking believable on that show. But it is – listen, it, it's humans, right? Everyone thinks – that's why on my Twitter handle, I call myself a Deep State alum, and hopefully people <laughs> yeah. understand that I'm trying Wait, to be There's funny. a wink
1: to it, yeah. There is a wink to it. But it's closer to Veep than House of Cards. 100%. And
0: like I mean, beep of course, let's be clear, it's over the top ridiculous. Like right. when I worked in the White House, Vice President Biden worked incredibly hard, but the like the beauty of a show like that or The Office is people forget these are all human beings. Like, I, these people were not born knowing like every skill they needed to know for global dominance.
1: And they only have so much time in a day, too. It's like, when beings. are they going to the secret meetings to do the things? You know? Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean it's, that said, yeah. there are nasties, and I know. I yeah. mean, because I saw Narcos, I know. <sighs> Um, (laughs) there's bad CIA guys, you know, who are like, don't care about the drug deals because there's a more important arms deal they have to do or Ali North and that stuff still, still goes on and all. But anyway, so you were to do shorthand. You're this good person and helping... Try to be. <laughs> and trying to actually listen to people in real places, hearing what their real problems are and thinking about how can U.S. government intervention or withdrawal kind of help uh, a, a situation. Can, what if we plug these two things together and then we avoid all this other conflict over there? It's beautiful. And I have another friend, this guy, Kevin Hughes, who works with the State Department, Says always says the same thing. He goes, they're trying to do everything online. They're trying to do it from a distance. The, where You solve diplomatic problems with is in the last foot is actually one hundred percent because you have to build trust
0: and you can't. It's I would argue almost impossible to build trust online, and we'll get to that because that's the whole point. But yeah, that's that's what it's about. And you know, let's be clear. Of course, anything. I wasn't just hanging out in Kenya because it's a fun place to be. Yes, of course, it's because there's a U.S. interest. So the whole criticism of the U.S. is only doing this for its own interest. Of course we are that's why the
1: us is doing it
0: right, right. any I mean any yeah. country acts in their own self-interest right but my goal and honestly most of my colleagues was but how can we do this in a way that benefits both of
1: us. Well, because it's in our long-term best interests to have it be in everyone's best yes. interests. Because otherwise they're going to eventually get mad and have a revolution and yell at us.
0: It's not a zero-sum game. Like, we want right. the U.S. to do great and we want the rest of you to suffer. Like, no. If, if we can help you do better as well, that helps us do better
1: right I mean it's not the way you know, and we know historically it's not the way necessarily the World Bank and the IMF and you know a lot of these organizations have looked at say the global South you know they they look at it as a set of resources and you look at the deals that got made about making them export their food and destroying the topsoil and building plants it's been really an extension of colonialism mm-hmm. until fairly until people like you until fairly recent until kids who were raised by sort of in, in a I hate to call this, but kind of in a new left high school and an, a leftist understanding of the globe as cooperative, big blue marble, long term, climate change, stakes are for the global family until this generation came into it, what you're talking about wasn't even happening. It was, it was nasty through, through you know, Dulles and Eisenhower and all those guys. It wasn't a nice world.
0: <laughs> this is a podcast and so people can't see me smiling and nodding. So I guess I should say something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm smiling and nodding in the background.
1: Yeah, what, but which is people's understanding of what the U.S. government does in different places is understandably colored by Iraq, by Iran and well, the right, Shah and so everything I'm gonna, else. I'm yeah. going to make
0: one also really big distinction that I don't think people outside of government pay enough attention to. There's a difference between a politician and a career government official. And I wish people would understand that distinction a little more because yes, politics are nasty. And yes, people who are spending every two or every four years just trying to get elected come in with a 100% selfish, not 100% selfish agenda, but have a selfish agenda and it's get reelected. That is not the same thing as government. I hate it when people use the term government. Government is broken. Government can't get anything done. Government just is corrupt and selfish and self-interest. And I think that it describes politics more than Government,
1: right? Well, of course, the politicians would take the exact opposite side and would say that, "Look, we are the politicians, are the citizens who are going in and seeing this giant bureaucratic mess that everyone in it is just looking for ways to hire more people and give themselves more money and create bloated things. Where if you used market solutions, they're going to look for the thinnest, easiest. I mean, that was sort of the the Trump mandate. Yeah, look how that
0: worked. Yeah, out. come in and clean look this thing. Clean out. this thing out.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. It's not. I mean. And there's 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 problems there's problems with all of it but but i hear what you're saying that there's plenty and i know plenty of them too plenty of people who work in government the same way that they would volunteer for the peace corps mm-hmm. you know and that's that's the way it's the way i'm working for government i'm teaching in a public school that's I work for the government. My check comes from New York City, New York State, right?
0: Listen, everybody hates government until they realize how much they need government. And if you're not willing to fund your government, yes, hold your government accountable. Yes, our bureaucracy has gotten too big. Yes, I agree with all of those things. But at the end of the day, it's not private companies who are acting in your best interest. And when a thing like COVID hits and you actually need... A well-resourced and implemented, you know, actual response. That's that. That's yeah. where you
1: need your government. Yeah, exactly. It's because certain things, you know, and this is what people don't understand now. Certain things actually don't make money and it's okay. Like the big critique of the postal service is, wait a minute, it's not profitable. It's like, neither is your library is not profitable. Neither are your schools. They're not, it's like, just (laughs) not everything. Uh, An entity's profitability is not the only measure of its success. You know, My mom was not profitable, right? But she raised me.
0: But what's really sad is, so we also value don't value people who aren't seeking to be profitable as much. Like, I don't know if you saw, I wrote a piece recently on sort of the culture differences between a company like Facebook and a public servant, because in government, my customer, my client, whatever you want to call it, was not um, someone that I was trying to get money from. My job was not to grow profit. My job was not to, at the end of the day... Uh, maximize shareholder gain. My job was to protect the American people. And when that's your client and that is your mission, you're also judged very differently on whether or not you succeed. Whether or not I succeeded was not based on how much money I was able to shave off of our operating expenses. That was someone, I mean, there are people whose job in government is to ensure how budgets work. But when you are completely freed of having to ever worry about that part, And truly focus on what am i doing to protect the american people it gets it allows you to operate in a totally different way
1: which is actually an interesting way to get back to our our facebook story so you're coming from government and looking at how to protect democracy and now facebook is actually asking you well will you come in here And help us figure out how to protect democracy or at least stop damaging (laughs) democracy (laughs) with this platform so when you came in and i guess now too you would believe maybe without a a, not with a chicken little the sky is falling thing but you do believe that these platforms that we're not overestimating the impact of social media on our kind of political cognition
0: 100% I 100% agree. Like I am a little bit of a chicken little, which is funny because I'm such a sort of like grounded thinker and seeing both sides of everything. Um, I, I recognize all the good that social media has done as well. I always feel like I have to say it because the first thing people do is jump down my fricking throat of like being this naysayer or whatever. Right. Of course I use Facebook to keep in touch with my friends all over the world. That said, <laughs> It doesn't make any of the bad okay just because there is good as well. And I keep just saying Facebook. Of course, it's more than Facebook. Of course, it's the larger information ecosystem. Of course, traditional media has its own problems. I worked at Facebook, so I'm going to talk about Facebook. I do believe that they have such an unbelievably profound impact on how we engage with people, on how we think on what we're seeing, on what we consume, on how angry
1: and extreme so many of us are becoming. So knowing that, then what did you feel you might be able to do from within Facebook to prevent like Russians and Cambridge Analytica and all that, or was that really the problem? Was it was the problem bad actors? you know, coming in and and making us crazy? Or is it like something about the environment itself, the way Facebook works that you wanted to kind of address?
0: So when I first went in, I didn't have the answers to that yet. I I feel much stronger in my answers now.
1: But you were asking that same question? 100%. Was you? Good, because that's my question. Yeah. When I went in, even during the interviews,
0: I was very clear during the interviews. I said, if you're looking for someone who's going to come in on day one and have all the answers, then I'm not the right person to hire if you're looking for someone who wants to come in and spend time really digging in, looking under the rugs, trying to truly understand how did we get to where we are today before starting to propose solutions, then that then I'm that person. I come from an analytic intelligence and government background. I am going to take my time to diagnose the problem first. And they were all like, of course, you should take months before you like, it was like, yes, that's exactly what we want. That's exactly what we want. And then of course, my biggest one of my big criticisms and one of the ways they tried to tell me I was terrible is that I didn't move fast enough. And I was like, it's funny, because didn't we have this conversation?
1: Well, this is the move fast and break things company. So
0: so yeah. Um, When you ask me in an email, like, what should we do about this country? I need an answer in five minutes. (laughs) I'm like, well, so my process would be to figure out. Yeah. yeah, Figure out. But there's
1: revolutions happening and stuff. So they kind of, I understand they want to know, you know? I I went in honestly with the idea of I don't know what I don't know.
0: And that's a lot. I know that um, my role, to be clear, my role was confined to. I knew that I was going in to work on elections. I knew that I wasn't going in to fix all the systemic issues right. of why Facebook is an outrage machine. I knew that I wasn't going in to change the business model that you know all of the attention economy stuff, that wasn't my role, and I knew that. But I also didn't know that I was gonna be so restricted to such a small piece of like, put in a corner, you're not actually working on anything but political ads, and even there, you're not like that, I didn't know. Right. So within the space of elections, my impression was help figure out a what are all the ways that bad actors are going and by bad actors i don't just mean russians i mean any political operative who wants to somehow manipulate this platform to sway damage affect influence an election that is what i was coming in and remember i spent most of my career working on countries with authoritarian regimes not not kenya but other i worked on other countries as well or like different kinds of governing structures i didn't just spend my whole life in the silicon valley although oddly enough i did grow up there so i was already coming in with the assumption that well it's not just about russians interfering in the us it's about governments doing what they can in their own countries as well Here's something you'll find funny though. I was speaking to a friend who worked there before accepting the position, and this person warned me very strongly, oh, during your interviews, don't talk about what happened uh, in 2016. You don't want to make anybody feel like you're blaming them for what happened. I was like, I'm sorry, what? So I'm being asked to come help fix the election integrity problem, but I shouldn't talk about how we got here to begin with? That should have been the biggest red flag from day one.
1: So then what happened? (laughs) I guess, what did you figure out? And then what happened?
0: Uh, Actually, it's the opposite direction. What happened and then what did I figure out? (laughs) Okay. So uh, on the first day, you know, you go to Menlo Park and you go through orientation and it's like the happiest day in the world. It was like freaking Disneyland all day. And I'm like the old lady in the corner thinking, are you kidding me? Like all we are talking about is rainbows and unicorns. Like, I'm here for a really serious job. I'm not here to help figure out how to get people to date using a Facebook app, right? But even I got sucked into some of the rah-rah cheerleading indoctrination. <laughs> I call it indoctrination. And for what you say,
1: it it I was at Facebook for one day, you know, where they they let authors come. You go and you speak for free and you get yourself down there for free and you get a couple of cliff bars and a coffee, but you know, I got to see Facebook and I told them during my talk that, you know, I was doing this for free and it was really expensive and I had to fly myself out. And they asked they said oh but we could do the workers who came to my talk so we could do something for you they all had some kind of secret credits in the thing and they started typing and they got like my book like somehow they got me and my appearance and my book to they go all like their Trend.
0: credits that's so yeah, awesome <laughs> it was
1: very sweet it was really sweet though and i felt like oh that's nice they i didn't even know what they were doing but they typed in their computers and my book got on Facebook." And it was like, but can we back
0: up to the fact, this is actually really <laughs> telling. The fact that they expected you to come out to speak to them and it should be free, I actually think this is one of the most damaging effects of the way the internet is working right now. The idea that everything should be free, convenient, easy, fast, is exactly what devalues people like you and me, or it completely devalues expertise, it completely devalues people who put in the time and energy to try to actually understand and become experts in things. And it values people who can figure out how to get your laundry to your door faster. And yes, that's wonderful and convenient,
1: right. No, exactly. But it takes ProPublica time, effort, money for a professional journalist to try to dissemble the multimillion dollar disinformation campaign of a government or a corporation. Yes, You've got to spend <laughs> some money. To deconstruct Mm -hmm. that or we're just surrendering the whole thing to the to the bad guys
0: yeah yeah every time i get asked to speak and of course then when i go well so what what speaker fee do you pay oh no but what you're doing one guy actually said would you consider it a public service because you're really helping us understand our effect on democracy and i said to him, my whole life it's been a public service. Yeah.
1: I know, <laughs> anyway. but it's hard. It's hard. I got that when I when, when um they wanted me to speak at Uber and I did. And they're like, come on, you wrote all this stuff. You're critiquing Uber. You you believe Uber should change. We're inviting you to come in and tell us how we should change. It is an interesting uh, dilemma that a lot of us who care about the world are in because it's like okay now you're allowed to speak to that you know, we'll, we'll let we'll give, grant you an audience <laughs>
0: <laughs> right but the, the reason i brought this up is i'm sure people have always wanted to exploit people for free for sure yeah. but it's this we're disrupting things in the tech industry what they're really disrupting is paying people for the work they're actually doing right but anyway that's a whole other subject yeah. so yes went in so on day two is when the shit hit the fan. I have my first meeting with my my boss who was not in Mellow Park. So it was like one of these blue jeans meetings. Of the five people who interviewed me, I knew this was the person who didn't want me to work there to begin with. And this person told me on day two, oh, I'm really sorry. Um, we're going to have to change your title. I was like, well, this wow. is a weird first meeting because I know I haven't done anything wrong yet. Yeah. <laughs> Um, like like I know I haven't deserved to be downgraded yet. Right. Yeah. No, we just, we don't use head of at Facebook. So we're going to change your title to manager. I was like manager of what? Oh, just manager. So you hired me by offering me a role as the global head of elections integrity ops. And now I am manager. And then this person spent the next several months gaslighting me, telling me that my biggest problem was I was so stuck up and and focused on what my title would be that I didn't care about the work I was doing. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, you missed the entire point. It has nothing to do with caring about where I am on the ladder. It's about what you are doing. You are ensuring that I don't work on the thing you hired me to work on. (laughs) So that, you know, day two was already crushing. And for the next however many months, I was drowned in chaos all the time. I, you know, go to this country, go to that country, go do this, go do that. But never once was I actually ever at the table where the real conversations were happening that I was hired to work on. And I remember one person saying to me once, why are you going to, I don't remember if that trip was Singapore or India or somewhere. Why are you going there when the U S midterms are coming up and they are having serious huddles right now about what they're going to do about political advertising ahead of the U S midterms. Isn't that what you were hired to lead? And I was like, that's a great question. I don't know the answer. And this person said, Do you think they're purposely sending you all over the world to keep you out of that room and to keep you away from that conversation? And you know what, Doug? I think they were. Mm. I was 100%. And and I'll also just add really quickly, because otherwise we're going to go down a big rabbit hole of what happened there. I was having a conversation with someone recently about being cut out of all the meetings and this person said to me well I don't understand it's Facebook why didn't you just go right up to mark or Cheryl like isn't it this flat company where everybody's supposed to (sighs) flat company my ass but that's a whole nother thing Um, I found Facebook to be more bureaucratic than any place I'd ever worked but and I don't know if this is listen I came from government my my professional education happened in government in government you respect the chain of command maybe more than you should there is a hierarchy but there's also just you basically you don't go above your boss's head you include them collaboration is important like going through the steps of including your whole team are important so when my boss is specifically telling me you're not allowed to talk to this person you're not allowed to go to this meeting you're not uh. allowed i am stuck with this. Okay, so this person's telling me that I shouldn't do this. And so my government education is respecting that. And to this day, I will say, considering how much I've spoken out now and considering how much I have been validated by other employees validating the things I have said, that I'm not just angry and bitter, but that legitimately I did try to address lies and political ads from like the very start of my time there and that I did try to help build plans to combat voter suppression and all the things I tried to do, it's been validated to me that it was very intentional to not let me be in that conversation because Mark Zuckerberg had already decided that he was going to let Trump lie and he was not going to fact check political ads. And since those decisions had already been made, I was just pushing all the wrong buttons.
1: But for our benefit, the months that you did spend there thinking and researching and looking at the world, you did come up with, even if they weren't actionable in the company, you came up with some coherent ideas about what is wrong. Oh, yeah, for sure. So why is this happening? One of the things I found really interesting was
0: how I was constantly put in this corner of you work on political ads. You know, if a Facebook user in the real world is on Facebook and they see content that tells them that Hillary Clinton is part of a child sex trafficking cabal who's locking children up in the basement they're not stopping and going is this a political ad or is this organic content exactly doesn't they're just matter it's this on facebook
1: right and it's a it's an alarming inflaming meme that we can't help but spread whether we believe it or not
0: and so my first takeaway i don't i don't think i ever talk about this is that this bullshit separation and that i was not to talk about organic content or i was not supposed to care about what was happening in the rest of the platform because i'm here to work on political ads i kept saying we should be coordinating this effort like I right. should be working with the security people, and I should be working with the disinformation people. And what are you talking about? It, it's on Facebook. So that was the first thing: the
1: silos. But a lot of us felt like, oh, it was it was sort of Facebook's business model that got hacked, and that these things ended up spreading because they were. Profitable. So
0: 100%. So this is why I brought this up. So there's two different things. There's what did I learn about what's going on with the actual platform? And what did I learn about what was going on with political advertising? Uh-huh. And I separate it for a reason. Because political advertising, a lot of people will say is not as important as what's happening on the organic content. The organic content side, exactly what you're saying and exactly what my entire Ted talk is about, right? It's about the inflammatory, exploiting your human behavioral data, your weaknesses, your biases to keep you engaged, to pull you in, and then starting to take you down all the different rabbit holes. I don't need to give the whole attention economy speech right now, but for sure, that is their biggest problem in my opinion. So all their talk about content moderation and all their talk about, but we took this guy down or we de-platformed that guy or whatever, that's wonderful. But you have never, ever spoken about the systemic issues that are causing your platform to be a cesspool of hate and division to begin with. And that is your business model.
1: Right. And these are the arguments that you've been making for, you know, eight years, 10 years that I've been making for, for that time and that now, you know, Netflix is, is, you know, finally on to.
0: Yep. But then on the other side, where it comes to the money machine, the advertising, where they make their money. The funny thing is, I think that should be held to an even higher standard because it is where you are actually charging your customers and your customers are not you and me. Your customers are advertisers. Right. You are actually charging money. People are paying for the tools that you are providing and whether or not your targeting tools are perfect because people like to go, oh, but it didn't even really work. That's not the point. You are selling targeting tools to people to target human beings with their ads. Now, do I really give a crap if I am targeted with a Nike ad versus a Reebok ad because Nike figured out that I'm more likely to be a Nike person than a Reebok? No, I don't really think that's damaging to society. But you're selling those same exact tools to operatives who want to sway elections, who want to convince certain groups of voters to stay home, who want to sell housing ads to make sure black people don't see those ads. I mean, these targeting tools are allowing you to even facilitate criminal and illegal behavior and you're making money from it. And it should be the easiest part to regulate. So that's another thing I'm really frustrated about. But to get to like Russia, 2016, the election, here's what always sort of fascinates me. The amount that we have heard Mark and Cheryl say, we couldn't have known this was going to happen. We know we have to do better. We were so blindsided in 2016. Oh my gosh, who could have possibly known that this was going to happen? You know who could have known, Doug? probably a bunch of US government intel people who had spent their entire career working on the Cold War probably could have known that Russia would try to figure out how to use these very convenient and inexpensive tools to engage in information warfare, to to engage in propaganda, to do what... In fact, there is a video from, I think, 1984 of a KGB defector specifically laying out that this is what they were going to do. Uh, Besmanov is his last name. Right. I recommend everybody watching this video. So it's not that nobody could have known. It's that none of those people were brought inside behind the curtain at Facebook to understand Holy, ch- I, I can guarantee you some dude who worked on the cold war his whole life. If he truly understood what Facebook was doing before 2016 would have been able to say, whoa, heads up, this is a gold mine for Russian KGB operation type warfare. So this whole idea that nobody could have known is bullshit. It's that you didn't want anyone to know.
1: And the distraction, I feel like, when we actually dealt with it as a nation, was we were so obsessed with tying Trump operatives to this Russian, you know, and and widespread disinformation campaign that we lost... We kind of lost the forest for the trees, you know, and it wasn't it because it wasn't about, you know, Trump or Roger Stone or whoever. It's about a widespread intentional and disinformation and unintentional disinformation campaign by Russia and others. It it was it was a, a crazy free for all.
0: So for the last four years, Facebook has had the opportunity to fix these issues, however you want to say it and show the world that in 2020, they got it right, right? So they spent most of those four years fixing the problems of 2016 instead of the problems of 2020. And what I mean by that is when I was on the political ads team, you know, we were putting in guardrails so that Russians couldn't pay for ads in rubles, right? We were putting in guardrails, so you had to prove that you lived in the country that you were advertising in. I
1: mean, right. Or changing the API so that another Cambridge Analytica can't come. And you know, and, and those are important guardrails, you know? 100%. So
0: congratulations. I applaud you for doing the bare minimum that you should have done already. But yes, I applaud some of the moves. You've now created this ad library, which you called an archive at first, where researchers could go in and see some basic, not all the targeting that, I mean, they can't see everything, but they can do some basic research. Again, that does not fix this shit. You are telling us that like the average user is still being exploited on your platform, but hey, deep investigative journalists can at least like go crawling through your platform, archives, whatever. What they refused to address are two major things. A, you are refusing to recognize that you are allowing donald trump to use your platform in the same exact way the russians did but you are permitting it you are permitting i will never agree with mark zuckerberg's freedom of speech defense for allowing political advertisements to contain blatant lies first of all it's not freedom of speech it's paid speech it's not that those are two very different things um let's be crystal clear i mean I I understand the arguments of not fact checking Donald Trump's organic posts. I have mixed feelings about that, but you will never be able to justify that to me in paid advertising, uh, first and foremost, but I blame the U S government as well for not updating any of our campaign laws to apply to the digital world. Um, that shouldn't have been so hard. But then you are more important than the advertising. And let's be really clear why advertising matters. Yes, the Russians only spent whatever $100,000 or whatever the total was. I don't even remember anymore. But it's not about how much they're spending. It's about the targeting tools that you are providing them. It's about the fact that Donald Trump, if he wants, can send you and me to totally different versions of an ad so that you and me can't come together around Mm -hmm. the metaphorical water cooler and debate what we saw. They, they love to talk about how political speech is the most scrutinized speech in the world and therefore we won't fact check it. Yeah, but you're allowing different versions of lies to be targeted to different people based on a profile you've created about those people, based on the data that you have gathered on those
1: people. And that was being done. To be fair, that was, you know, vigory with, with, with the Republicans was doing it you know, in the, in the John Kerry election where there was, you know, looking at certain people and saying, Oh, these are Bible people. We're going to send messages saying that John Kerry wants to make the Bible illegal. They sent those people believed it.
0: So now to be clear, everyone will always say, but this already happened before Facebook, not in the way, not in the same thing. Somebody can send a different version of an ad to a local newspaper in town X than they do in town Y, but at least everybody in town X has the ability to see that ad. Totally different than the fact that two people who live across the street are targeted differently. right? And then on the organic side, they have 100% refused to address how their platform is contributing to polarization and tribalism. They have refused to address that at all, like zero.
1: The question becomes: So, if Facebook got serious and you know, de-platformed people who are doing all the crap and don't let this come, do people just go to you know, 4chan and 8kun and and Parler? And
0: they do. And I'm and I'm not going to pretend to have the solution to all of that. They do, and right. there's a problem there as well. I, I don't know. I'm still thinking through some of this, but I say the same thing with like cable news. When you turn on Fox News, you know what you're getting. Does that mean I excuse? Some of the things that happen on Fox News, not at all. But you know what you are getting. And when you go to MSNBC, you know what you're getting. You know the political bent, leaning perspective that you are purposely turning into. It's why
1: most towns used to have two newspapers. Right. right? When you go on to (laughs) Facebook,
0: you are sold a lie that you were going on to look at your friends' kittens, puppy dogs, and babies. You are not told. And meanwhile, we are profiling you segmenting you into a perfect little box so that we can perfect this personalization process and sell you to advertisers. Oh, we don't sell people's data. No, but you sell targeting tools and your targeting tools are based on our data. You're not told that that's what's happening. This black box of what is happening behind the scene is a problem. When you go to HN, when you go to parlor, I have mixed feelings about this. Cause when you go to parlor, you know, exactly where you're going. You know, that you are going onto a platform that is specifically set up for the people that you are wanting to engage right. with. And now again, to be clear, that doesn't mean that I agree. Like, do I think parlor should be 100% held responsible for allowing people to actively encourage a firing squad against the vice president of the United States? No, because that's actually like sedition is criminal. And so that's a whole different story. But all of those excuses did not change the fact that Facebook still is the biggest player on the global stage of how people connect, communicate, and consume information. And it didn't happen by accident. They intentionally and relentlessly scaled recklessly to dominate the entire global public square while believing they bore no responsibility for what that means. And that is my issue.
1: Right. And not only did they, you know, become a public square, but they changed the behavior in the greater public square. So when you say, you know, that post about that the Vice President Pence, they mean, should be put in front of a firing squad for not supporting the coup, that was like some congressman or senator who said it. (laughs) You know? <laughs> and it's like, why? how How can a congressman or senator feel okay saying that? Because that's the kind of, of language and vitriol that's now in the public square.
0: In what happened at the U.S. Capitol on the day that they were certifying the election, in and of itself, that, yes, I put the blame squarely on Donald Trump for... Actually, telling his supporters to go do that. But Facebook is 100% complicit because they also allowed that activity to happen on their platform. They allowed people to actively encourage illegal activity. They allowed, like, okay, so if you look at the Twitter feed, the woman who got shot while storming the Capitol. I love how in the early part of it, they really just kept talking about a woman got shot. So I started doing deep dives. And once I found her name, I started scrolling through her Twitter feed. And I'm glad I did because by the next day, her Twitter feed was very different. So on that night, I started scrolling through her Twitter feed. And it was just a cesspool of QAnon, conspiracy theory, like everything you can imagine. Constant retweeting, like dozens a day of like Lynn Wood and Posoviak and all the characters you can imagine. And since Lynn Wood was then deplatformed the next day, all of that's disappeared from her Twitter feed. Mm. But I look at this as here's a woman, 14-year veteran, who served in multiple tours, who, according to this New York Times profile that came out on her, ended up being, you know, had some hard times after leaving the military, which many people do. Like she ends up being the perfect profile of a vulnerable person for conspiracy theorists to get their hooks into, right? She has left the military. She's seeking her new tribe. She, she's feeling a little bit lost. Apparently she wasn't doing very well with her business. She's getting more and more disillusioned with the government. That is the most ripe person possible for conspiracy theorists to get their hook into. And here's the thing. Sure you can blame the conspiracy theorists. What I would like to know is, did Facebook or Twitter have any role in recommending QAnon people for her to follow? Did Facebook have any role in recommending groups of QAnon for her to consider joining? Did Facebook connect her to people who, did Facebook start amplifying and boosting more and more of that content or Twitter into her feeds? That's where I think the responsibility should lie. Not in whether or not freedom of speech to talk about these things should be hindered. That's not it. It's what did they do to help bring her down that rabbit hole? And we will never know.
1: You're looking at Facebook's role as a publisher. Literally, that's a publisher. When you're deciding what content goes in front of a person is very different than being an open, free platform. The bigger question
0: to me is not, well, shouldn't people have the right to talk about these things? Of course they should. That's called freedom of speech. But Should a platform be held responsible if their tools are the ones actually dragging someone down that path and then they go and commit an act of treason against the United States of America, I would argue there should be some responsibility in that. And until we are willing to regulate and legislate and say, we demand that there be transparency in how your recommendation engines and algorithms connect people with this kind of content or Allow people to actually join groups that are planning acts of treason. Until we demand that there be transparency around these things, I don't think we'll ever see it get fixed. Because because Facebook can deplatform people all they want, it's not fixing the problem of how the machine is working to engage us.
1: I mean, some of the the, the now most uh, uh, platform voices on this are the tech bros. In Social Dilemma. And on the one hand, I kind of want my students to see this movie and to hear from these folks, and beyond the plagiarism or whatever is going on there, you know, the, now they're doing Team Humanity. I mean, I get it. Beyond that, I mean, because I'm happy for my ideas to spread, whether I get credit or not. I'm paid, I'm a public teacher at this point, I get the money, it's fine. There's something else that's off about it, though. That's off about this movement. These, these guys, many of whom still have massive investments in Facebook, speaking out. It sort of trying to become. Some of them were trying to become Elizabeth Warren's tech advisor or whatever. And there's there's something off in this. There's something off in Prince. Whichever one it is, Prince Harry and Meghan working with Tristan Harris to do stuff for Netflix on the dangers of the net and upgrading humanity to be able to tolerate disinfo. But there's something off. And I'm wondering, because I saw you for a second in that Social Dilemma movie and conspicuously not saying anything, which I knew (laughs) either meant it was the usual, just they were ignoring you because you're a woman and not a tech bro uh, with, with, you know, you don't have a a, a tech billions or because you probably didn't want to be in there for, for some reason. To your mind, what, if anything, is kind of off about that movement? And I can't totally put my finger on it, except the sort of the, the, the refusing to be part of the, the greater community and legacy of tech critique.
0: So listen, I worked with Tristan for about five months after leaving Facebook. I have tremendous respect for anybody who can use their voice and their
1: platform to help really educate the, the public about what's happening. And their movie does that. It really does. A lot, millions of people now go, oh, that's what the algorithms are doing. That's how they're dragging me down. And that, you know, the, the scenes, uh, although crude, the scenes with the where they personify the algorithms, you know, where they're looking, how are we going to get his attention back? Oh, we're losing him. What do we do? What do we show him? You know, that was um, really good for people to see yeah.
0: that. I mean, my parents, for example, have listened to my talks and read my stuff and obviously know me well. And I think after that movie, my dad was like, oh wow, now we get it. So it did an amazing job of taking a lot of this and making it super palatable for the public, which I think is incredibly important. A lot of what frustrates me though, and I'm not the only one is the Cassandras who are screaming from the mountaintops early on are considered alarmist or are ignored because they're women or people of color or because they're not rich. Somehow, if you're not rich, you're not as interesting mm. or because whatever the reason, but then when certain groups of people start latching on to that message, suddenly it's really important. And my thing is I try to intentionally make sure that I name the people that I'm learning from, that I give credit to the people whose ideas really helped me understand. Like, listen, I, the attention economy, I learned a lot of that from people like Tristan, from people like you, from so many other people. That was not a thing that I learned on my own. My bigger strength is sort of information operations and how bad actors globally exploit that shit. But all of that other stuff I learned from others. And it helped form my opinions that I have today a lot of what is missing right now is the recognition of Who are you learning from? and Yes, my voice was not in the movie. I Did not want it to be But I didn't want it to be for multiple reasons. I actually really really like the filmmaker but at the time I didn't know the filmmaker Mm. it was sort of hoisted on me as film crew is going to follow you and Tristan around Capitol Hill. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm a former government person. I'm very respected in DC. Can somebody help me explain why? Um, And I'm not going to be in a movie where I look like I was Tristan's assistant and got him coffee. And that was never how Tristan treated me. I don't want to give that impression. But it was just like, I don't believe that this movement is about making any one person like our hero, right? It's a movement that many, many, many people have been passionate about for years. And the other thing that was really missing in that movie were the voices of the people who are actually harmed by these products, were the voices of people who have like really have those kinds of perspectives. And then fast forward to yesterday, what set me off on January 7th, for all of us who have been talking about Facebook's complicity in... Helping Trump achieve what he's been achieving, for all of us talking about their effects on democracy, for all of us screaming about these things for so long. And then yesterday, you had people, certain big Silicon Valley, very stereotypical people saying, I believe now it is time to deplatform Trump. I'm sorry, what? Because for months, you are the type of person who has been accusing me of not having the right to have a voice in this because I'm not the profile that you think should be talking about these issues. And then this morning, I'm listening to the Pivot podcast, the one with Kyra Fisher and Scott Galway, yeah. And I hear Casey Newton, who I don't know. I read his stuff. He's got some very interesting perspectives. I don't know if this is what he meant. But he said on the podcast this morning, something along these lines, I know people are very critical that I didn't think Trump should have been deplatformed earlier. And I have my reasons for that. And that's fine. I respect that. But then he says, but now that Ben Thompson and I have said, we believe Trump should be deplatformed. Hopefully something will move. Do you hear that now that Ben Thompson and I have decided it is the moment this should happen. Hopefully it will happen. That is the biggest slap in the face to all the people who have been warning about this moment for years. I have been warning about this moment ever since I outed my own CIA past in an op-ed on day one of Trump's presidency to warn the world of the authoritarian we had just elected and what this means for democracy. But now that Ben Thompson and Casey Newton have said this, hopefully something will move. So, like to me, it's very much this once you have some celebrities and people who are very much part of the inner circle Silicon Valley crew, once they agree to something, then it should happen. And all of you people who have screamed about it before, you're just a bunch of screaming people. Sorry, that was right.
1: a very long answer. No, but it makes sense. It's like when a think who runs BlackRock or Jamie Dimon or one of these guys says, "Oh, I think there's a wealth inequality problem." <laughs> It's like,
0: dudes. You're talking about two lines you? of this. Like, I'm glad that Ben <laughs> Thompson and Casey Neal feel this way now. And exactly. I'm certainly glad that Tristan has a true gift for how to give a public speech that really moves mm-hmm. people. I am thrilled that people are speaking up about these things. But what I cannot stand is when they don't give any credit to the people who have helped them come to the knowledge that they have right. gained and leave them out of the conversation right. moving as forward as if
1: this is new i was i woke up last night in a sweat realizing the internet has a problem <laughs> it's like as if this is this emerged ex nihilo you know without any uh without any legacy or or,
0: or like again with the ben thompson Casey Newton thing Again, Casey has been doing this work longer than many. I respect that. I don't mean it like he doesn't have the right to have that right. opinion. It was the statement that now that the two of us have decided it's time that, and and I, I he may hate me for this whole conversation. I don't mean to rag on him. It was po- very possibly not what he meant to say Right. But it's what he well, said. it came
1: out that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it came out that way and it's what he said and I, I know what you mean. It's like okay now that now that now that we say uh now that we say it it's it's true
0: anyway you of all people know how that feels
1: <laughs> i do so. and i'm working hard to make all these little videos and things and talk saying it's great let's just welcome them to the team you know we're chipping off more and more of them it's the same way i feel you know when you see your favorite local band on a t-shirt at the mall it's like ah well it's i'm glad they're successful because i love them but
0: yeah that's the perfect example i grew up I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up with Green Day playing, like, garage birthday parties, right, in college. <laughs> and so, like, of course, I'm glad that they're a huge success. But, like, I knew them when. Yeah.
1: <laughs> There's some of that. But we did. And and the thing is, in this case, if some of these things were accepted and recognized, if we were listened to 10, 15 years ago, yeah, we would have we had a, a whole lot um, easier time Arresting the development of these things before they uh, took down so much of our society. At the end of the
0: day, we know, unfortunately, the reality is until the right people start speaking and working on things. So, yeah, it's a double edged sword. Of course, I am happy that Prince Harry and that Sacha Baron Cohen thinks it's a really big thing. But, yeah, until people like that do, it's not a movement, I guess.
1: Yeah. Or it's not a successful one, but, uh, well, we'll see. We'll see whether the team human becomes more team
0: uh, over time. (laughs) I'm on your team, Doug.
1: (laughs) I know. And I'm on yours. Thank you so much for all you're doing. I'm very interested to see what your next, what your next chapter is going to be. And, um, I and the team are here to support you in it. Thanks
0: so much. I was so, I had such a good time chatting with you.
1: You've been on Team Human. Our guest today was Yael Eisenstadt. You can find out more about her work and activism at yaeleisenstadt.com or go to teamhuman.fm where you can find out more about Yael and all of our guests and also become a paying subscriber and member of the team. Team Human is produced by Josh Chaptalin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.